Well, it'd be great if you could uh, keep that passage open in your Bibles in front of you. Let's pray, shall we, as we begin. Our gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it teaches us. And as we look at it this morning, Father, we pray, would you lead our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the Lord Jesus, that his name may be lifted high. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, I don't know uh, who you would consider to be uh, an inspirational leader, one who is of particular interest to you. If you've been around uh, the Church of England for any time recently, you'll know that there have been some problems arising, hasn't, haven't there, with inspirational leaders, people who, who have led great congregations and then something dreadful has happened. They've had a moral failure or they've turned out to be abusers in some way. They've turned out not to be the real deal, if you like. They're not what we expected. They've been a disappointment. And we naturally follow those inspirational leaders, don't we? Even though they're flawed. And that was something that Israel was discovering the hard way. It doesn't go well when we place our trust in human leaders who so often can be disappointing rather than the Lord God. And Saul learned, didn't he, that when God told him to do something, God meant it. Well, I'm going to unpack the passage for us this morning just under two headings. Firstly, the disappointing king, that's uh, from verses 1 to 11, and secondly, the rejected king. Verses 12 through to the end. But before we get to that first section, I do just want to spend a few minutes dealing with what you might call the elephant in the room, or as a friend of mine used to call it, the dead moose on the dinner table. Um, and, and that's verse 3. Have a look at verse 3, would you? Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. That's a pretty tough verse, isn't it? And it's often been said to me, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, but I don't like that brutal Old Testament God. And as we read that verse just on its own, it sounds like a war crime, doesn't it? It sounds utterly horrid. Actually, we shouldn't shy away from that. It is horrid. The commentator, John Woodhouse, says there is no way to lessen the horror of this moment. But it does leave us asking sometimes, doesn't it? Where does God, who is the very definition of perfect love fit in to that instruction in that verse. Well, I just want to share some principles to help us as best as we can uh, to understand some things that the, the Bible teaches which are difficult. Now, firstly, the Bible records lots of pretty unsavory things. After all, it deals with sin and with evil, as well as God's glorious answer to it in the Lord Jesus. And we believe that the Bible is true, don't we? 
but it is not ever trying to be a sanitized account of history. It doesn't avoid the difficult things. In a sense, if I can steal that old slogan, it does what it says on the tin. It presents God's word and it doesn't sugarcoat the truth to make it sweeter. And of course, neither should we. <clears throat> Second principle, <clears throat> excuse me, God's view of love and the way we in society view love are fundamentally different. See, God's perfect love is expressed both in grace, poured out for us, and on the other hand, in judgment. You see, God has a settled hatred of evil. He will not, in fact, he cannot tolerate it. It would be contrary to his very nature to say, ah, oh, whatever, it's fine. And I want us to see that that is actually really good news for those who place their trust in the Lord Jesus. It's good news because in verse 3, God's judgment is all about the protection of his people. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis put it like this, no vengeance on God's enemies means no deliverance for his people. In fact, Isaiah said in chapter 61 verse 2 that he was sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Why? To comfort all who mourn. Thirdly, it's good news because I'm sure you've had this experience. It's just natural within our beings to want to see justice done. We're made in God's image after all, so our nature in certain aspects reflects his nature, albeit dimly. I wonder whether you've ever come across those uh, items on the news where something terrible has happened and so-and-so has been sentenced to a whole life term and they interview uh, the family who've had perhaps a, a loved one murdered and so they've lost them and they might say something like well that sentence won't bring our loved one back but it does seem like justice has been served today. Other people sometimes, may, maybe you've said this, I think I've probably said this at times, you see a certain sentence given and you say, well, I hope they throw away the key. It, it's, it's kind of verbalizing the reality that to us as people, justice matters. Now, as Christians, when we face the wrath of God in his judgment, when we stand before him, we will do so knowing that our sin is paid for. We don't have to face it alone, but we rejoice in the certainty that in his death, Christ suffered that judgment for us. I found this uh, phrase from Tom Wright helpful. God's wrath is God's love as experienced by the unrepentant sinner. But for the repentant sinner, who turns away from sin and comes to the cross, then they're united with Christ. That's the joy of the gospel, isn't it? To be one with Christ throughout all eternity. 
And therefore, rather than writing off these tough judgments and saying, oh, that's just the Old Testament God, don't like that, but we love Jesus, we shouldn't be writing them off in that way. Those difficult things expressed through the whole Bible, sometimes called God's divine retribution, we should praise him for that. Because it is always a just and a right judgment. I often refer to this verse in Genesis 18, verse 25, when I, I, I just, I, I really struggle to describe something that's going on. And that verse says this, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And of course the answer is yes. He is the judge of all the earth and he will do right. So with that little um, introductory explanation, what's the problem then with the Amalekites? Why did they need complete destruction? Well, to, uh, to just to understand the context of that, we need to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'll read it for you. If you want to follow, it's on page 203. But Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on their journey, on your journey, and cut off all who were lagging behind. That suggests or implies uh, the women, the children, the elderly, the less able. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. In effect, Amalek had committed war crimes against God's people. So God said they must be totally destroyed, utterly wiped out. And lest we think, by the way, but, but what about second chances and what about the opportunity for them to repent? Well, in our chapter today, verses 18 and 32 to 33 show us that all these years later they are still unrepentant. They are still evil. They are still set against God. So, praising God for his just and right judgment on those who stand against him. Let's look briefly at how this passage helps us to look to Jesus, the perfect king, the undisappointing king, by considering the kingship of Saul, who, as our first point, was the disappointing king. Uh, you may recall how in chapter 8, when we, we preached uh, this, um, the previous section of 1 Samuel last year, the Lord graciously allowed Israel's request for a king, even though that said and implied that they were turning their back on God, the perfect king. But Israel so wanted a king. Despite all God had said to them through Samuel about what a human king would be like, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us. And go out before us and fight our battles for us. They didn't think God was enough for them. They wanted something different. And as a military tactician, 
Saul didn't do such a bad job, did he? He, he mustered an army. He set an ambush. He protected the innocent Kenites from harm. We can see that in verses 4 to 8. But Saul, nevertheless, didn't quite live up to expectations. He was a disappointing king. And why was he such a disappointing king? Well, notice the big but at the start of verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Saul didn't do all that God had told him to do, did he? With clear instructions from the Lord, verse 1, to utterly destroy the Amalekites, verse 3, despite killing all the men, women and children, Saul decides to save the king, perhaps a kind of trophy of war, and keep the best animals, later making some lame excuse about sacrifices. Strange, isn't it? Saul seems to think that those best of the animals were of more importance than the men, the women, the children, the weaker people. That's why in verses 10 and verse 35, uh, even beyond the, the bit that was read today, the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. He had not obeyed everything that the Lord had instructed, just some of it. It's a bit like me saying, I've, I don't know what I've done, I've never killed anybody. I'm thinking, therefore, I'm all right. But actually, I've completely ignored God in every other respect. Saul had only done just some of what the Lord asked of him. And verse 11 gives us the reason for that grief, doesn't it? I'm grieved that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. I'm sure many of you here know people that you grew up with who loved the Lord Jesus, were fervent for the Lord Jesus, and now they've turned their back. They have no interest anymore. It's a tragedy, and it grieves the Lord. The instructions were clear, weren't they? Saul knew what he had to do, but something else, says Woodhouse, had captured his attention. It's worth just pondering briefly what, what, what it means that the Lord was grieved. Does it mean he'd made a mistake? Did he not foresee that as God of the whole universe and so be prepared for it? Or did he change his mind? Well, verse 29 that was read at the end of our passage, passage tells us, doesn't it, that, that that cannot be the reason. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. But there's no contradiction here. God did regret, as the ESV puts it, making Saul king. It grieved his heart. And I think what grieved his heart was Saul's disobedience. All that had happened is exactly what God said would happen in chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. If the king 
and the people do not obey the voice of the Lord. That was the message back then. God is not a, a you win some, you lose some kind of a God. Verse 11 doesn't show us God getting upset because he failed to spot something which later thwarted his plans. I'm sure you and I have all had that at some point in life. Something happens and you kind of face slap yourself and go, God, I should have seen that coming. No, it shows us here that God is grieved over Saul's sinful lack of obedience to him. God is not a cold slab of concrete devoid of any feeling. He notices when we turn away from him and disobey him. And sin grieves his heart. We're back into um, the, the flow of the story and we get to our second point, the rejected king, verses 12 onwards. Saul, notice, has gone off to build a monument in his own honour. That's interesting in itself, isn't it? Not in God's honour. And when Samuel finally tracks him down, we get the extraordinary, almost childish defence by Saul, don't we? Despite the, shout, the sound of the sheep bleating and the cows lowing, and the very alive prisoner, no doubt, somewhere tied up, King Agag, Saul says, I did everything God said. It was, it was my soldiers who brought all the sheep and the cattle back. Nobody likes a leader who passes the buck, the buck and blames everybody else, do they? I, I just had this picture of Saul at this point, a little bit like sometimes you see with children. You imagine their face is covered with chocolate. It's all over their hands. I didn't do it. He ate it. All the evidence is somewhere else, but that, oh, I've been caught. I need to pass the buck. It doesn't go well when you are a leader. So Samuel asks Saul very bluntly, doesn't he, in verse 19, why did you not obey the Lord? And Saul still maintains his innocence. The chocolate is still all over his face. He's still pretending it wasn't him. Which brings Samuel to the heart of what Saul needs to learn in verses 22. And 23. Have a look at those with me. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. It's powerful, isn't it? You see, what does God really want, Saul? He doesn't want your grudging, partial, mealy-mouthed obedience to just the bits that you want to obey in. He doesn't want your sacrifices. No. He wants your obedience to his word. Just note in passing, by the way, how David, who appears on the scene in the following chapters from next week onwards, is a very different king. Uh, he wrote in Psalm 
46, uh, Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, these words. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. It's quite a contrast, isn't it, to this king who is coming. You see, Saul had none of that desire to do God's will. Only, it seems, to do what seemed best to him. Just as an aside, by the way, that is the deceitfulness of sin, isn't it? It tricks us into thinking, it doesn't really matter. It'll be okay. I'll just ask God to forgive me again. But I'll keep my fingers crossed while I do it. See, Samuel again summarizes the problem in verses 24 to 28. And Saul makes a play of seeking forgiveness. But Samuel reminds him, the Lord has rejected you as king. And so in his desperation, Samuel, as, as Samuel is walking off, Saul grabs him, no, wait, 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 grabs hold of his gown, his robe, and it tears. And that gives Samuel the perfect illustration of God, what God will do. You've torn my robe. God is going to tear you away from being the king in his kingdom. And he's going to hand the kingdom over, as he says, to one better than you. Um, spoiler alert, that's going to be King David, just in case you can't make it next week. We can see that's referenced in chapter 28, 17, if you want to check that through. And Saul makes yet another go at showing repentance after that, but it's all skin deep. It's not heartfelt just have a look at me at verse 30, would you, which is just after where we finished reading earlier on. Chapter 15, verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honour me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. But do you notice his speech is about honouring me? And he doesn't, requite, he doesn't equate God with his God, no, I, so that I may worship your God. You see how Saul is distant from God. And the tragic, the, 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 kind of the tragedy of the story of, of, of the disappointment and rejected king ends with the prophet Samuel doing the king's job and finally executing King Agag, finishing off finally the Amalekites. It's a strange dynamic, isn't it? The warrior king having his job done by God's prophet. No wonder we end this sad series of events with a reminder that the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, it's a, a disappointing king who becomes a rejected king but perhaps has much to teach us. So just in closing, what are we to learn from all of this? Well, firstly, uh, there may be somebody here or with us or on the live stream who wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian or you're just not sure or maybe you're here just thinking, I want to check these things out. 
I haven't really bottomed it all out yet. Um, if that's you, can I say it's great that you're here and that you're checking out what the Christian faith is all about. Keep thinking, keep exploring, and keep listening to the teaching of this passage. Because we too are called to obey God and to submit to him. But it's worth us thinking briefly about what that means. You see, it doesn't mean doing loads of stuff like Saul did. You know, he was trying to bring sacrifices. In our case, we can be tempted sometimes to think, oh, I must obey God, I've got to do loads of stuff. I want to please him. I'm going to do lots of good deeds. I'm going to do charitable work. I'm going to donate to whatever it is. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to serve on my town council. I'm going to do coffee after church. I'm going to cut the grass at church. I'm going to help give to the poor. Now, of course, these are all good things to do, but they can never, can they, make us right with God. We could never do enough to make ourselves right with God. Instead, first and foremost, obeying God means submitting yourself to Jesus Christ the one who has been obedient, if you like. He's done all the obedience that's needed on our behalf in going to the cross. So your obedience to him means benefiting from his obedience and relying on his grace and not your own. As Saul discovered, not obeying God is foolishness in the extreme, isn't it? He was rejected. And if we continually in this day and age, reject coming to the Lord Jesus as our saviour, if we refuse to repent and come to him, we will face that rejection too one day when God judges all the earth. So can I encourage you, if you're not yet sure about all these things, please don't reject the offer of Jesus. Come to him at the cross. The consequences of rejecting him are eternal. Let me invite you, if you haven't already, to trust in the Lord Jesus. Submit to him. And if you'd like help with that, if you're not quite sure still, you've got questions, that's fine. Do come and have a chat to me afterwards or chat to Dan afterwards. We'd love to talk more with you. And secondly, for those of us here this morning who are Christians, what does it teach us? Well, it's good to remember, isn't it, that Saul showed, made a show of obedience. He did some of what God said, but then justified himself with feeble excuses and blaming others for the bits of his disobedience. So what does obedience look like? Well, as we've already said, it's not about activity. It's not about us bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices. He wants us to listen to him and obey him in all things. In other words, he wants our hearts. He doesn't want our mealy-mouthed second best. So don't fall for the deceitfulness of sin. That kind of niggling away, that little, little word in your head that says, don't worry, God won't mind if I, whatever it is, fiddle my expenses, It'll be okay. He won't mind if I go along with that foul-mouthed gossip behind someone's back at school. 
Or perhaps for you guys in laser, he won't mind if I cheat a bit at my exam. It will be good to get ahead a little bit. He won't mind if I look at pornography. It's not really doing any harm, is it? It is, by the way. Jesus won't really mind if I get drunk with my mates or if I do drugs or if I sleep with somebody I'm not married to. You get the picture. There's a whole range of other things. You'll know the ones that apply to you. Don't let the devil suck you into the idea that God is not bothered about sin. It grieves his heart. And anything else that says that sin is okay is a lie. Instead, let us humbly acknowledge that sometimes, like Saul, we have been superficial in our obedience to him and perhaps tried to cover it up and put on a good show. Well, we have a, a perfect opportunity in a few minutes as we come to the Lord's table, don't we? To bring our confession to him of those times when we've put him as second to other things, or possibly third or fourth or whatever. We come to the table, to the Lord's Supper here, joyfully, but humbly, with open hands and open hearts, to receive from the Lord Jesus the blessings that he abundantly pours into our hearts through his spirit. And I pray that as he, as we gather around his table, that that will give us the strength to trust him in all things, feeding on him in our hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. Amen.